right, so I'm gonna tell us about a little bit about Sister Ocean. Um, so they received their novice ordination uh, from the Venerable Master Thich Nhat Hanh in 2012 and full ordination in 2016. They trained at Plum Village Monastery in France and Blue Cliff Monastery in New York before leaving in 2018 to continue as a nun in the world. They continue to practice the precious teachings of Plum Village while integrating them with their practice and study of the Theravada tradition, mystical Christianity, and the framework of social justice. Writing music, poetry, and essays brings them great joy, as does their involvement in the Arise Sangha, dedicated to bringing racial justice to the forefront of the Plum Village community. Um, so the talk tonight will be recorded and that will be on our SoundCloud page, as I mentioned. So I'm gonna hand it over to you, Sister Ocean. Thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you, dear Sangha, for this invitation. First of all, can you hear me clearly enough? Yes, okay, great. Hmm. I always like to begin with dear Thai, dear Sangha, remembering that anytime we're practicing together, we bring the presence of our teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, to life. And um, not just Thai, but all of the teachers and students and spiritual friends for 2,600 years who have passed down these precious teachings were part of this stream. And it's an honor and privilege. I also like to say, dear Thai, in the sense of inviting all of the teachers of all the traditions that everyone here is connected to. I imagine that they are many. Um, so we can welcome all of the teachers that we've had, all the lineages that we're part of, and also honoring that everyone has an inner teacher and an inner student. We're all students and teachers, spiritual friends together on this path. So, so I say dear tie to the teacher in all of us and hope that this can be a time of sharing and, uh, and growth together tonight. I feel like these last months have just been such an intense time of grief, though not always named, with things changing in dramatic ways and subtle due to pandemics and uprisings and the inevitable small changes and losses of daily life. Um, so I was moved to speak on both gratitude and grief. And they go hand in hand when we have a, or they can go hand in hand and really be a beautiful support. And I wanted to start by sharing the story of Kisa Gotami that I'm sure many of you have heard. But I'll say it again for those unfamiliar or just for the fun of it. Kisa Gotami, which means skinny Gotami, was born in the time of the Buddha to a very poor family. Um, and she did eventually get married, but she was scorned by her family for having been from a poor family, for, by her in-laws. And finally she had a son, which in that 
culture at the time, and I think still today, was her redeeming quality and felt like life was getting better. Things were on track. And then her son died. And she was bereft, said that she lost her mind. She was so mad with grief. And she took her dead baby around to all the medicine people in the village saying, please, please, please help give me medicine for my baby. And they all said, your baby's dead. We can't revive it. Um, but eventually there's this one wise elder who said, you know, why don't you go to the Buddha? I think the Buddha can help you. And so she continued with her dead baby on her hip, ran over to the Buddha. He was at the edge of town giving a teaching as he did every evening. And when he finished his teaching, she came up to him to one, sat to the side, probably prostrated like everyone else did and said, please, please, please help. Please help bring my baby back. And the Buddha in his kindness and wisdom said, I can help you. But to do this, you must find a grain of mustard, a mustard seed from a house where no one has ever died. Bring me that seed and I will cure your baby. And she just said, thank you so much. And she jumped up and ran off, still with the baby in tow. It's said that she visited three households. And at each household, uh, the people were happy to give her mustard seeds. But when she asked, but has anyone died here? They said, oh, many people have died. I'm sorry, my seed isn't any good for you. And by the third house, she realized the universality of death. Came back to the Buddha. No, cremated her baby. She was ready to let go. Eventually came back to the Buddha, became a nun, became fully awakened, and we have her awakening poem to this day. That's why we still know about her. Um, from her com being completely consumed in grief, she was able to go to full awakening. And the story is often shared to bring home the point of the universality of, of death. That this cannot be avoided. But as I've sat with this through the years, because I've experienced a lot of grief through various experiences and times of life, I hear something else in it. It's not a standard interpretation. But when I think of the moment of Kisa Gotami asking the Buddha to save her baby, he doesn't give her a Dharma talk. He doesn't give her philosophy. He doesn't tell her to go sit with it and meditate. He tells her to go and be with people. And given that all these stories were written by the monks who didn't often pay much attention to the nuns, maybe the three houses, a typical device, the number three in stories in oral history, I think it was probably more than three houses. What if it was three days? She's carrying around this, this dead baby. Some people are bound to be horrified and slam the door in her face. Maybe there are insects starting to try to, you know, swarming, or maybe it's turned blue and starting to smell. And she, she's so out, she's so lost in her grief, not just for her child, but what it means for her life. Finally, she was, you know, finding some footing and it's all gone. And I can't help but imagine 
probably some grandmothers who've seen this before saying, come in, let me make you some tea. Let me feed you. Yes, we've had death here before. And offering her kindness. And I can't help but imagine that in that human contact, which these times we are so, so lean of human contact. But also in the space. However much time it took is the time it took for her to get to that point of, oh, my child has died. It's time to cremate him. And then when she was ready, the Buddha received her and offered the teachings and she began her practice. And that space just moves me to no end. When my mother had, well, when my mother was sick, um, I, was, I was just becoming an aspirant. I remember being at Plum Village reading No Fear, No Death, or No Death, No Fear. I always forget which order it is, the title of Ty's beautiful book around uh, interbeing and how when, when we see through the illusion of death, it's just all, you know, waves coming and going, all connected, no true start and end. When my mom was sick with cancer, I found tremendous solace in those teachings, but when she died very suddenly, at 59, after three months of cancer, when we thought she was getting better, in my own small way, I had my time of losing my mind with grief. And anytime anyone mentioned the Buddha's teachings around, I actually had a, I went, I even had a, a senior monk tell me, you know, people think they need to be sad when people die, but you don't have to. It's just, it's, it's, there's no birth, no death. And I just wanted I was mad. <laughs> the only thing that I found helpful at that time was staying with my body sensations, feeling that sense of a knife cutting through my chest, crying, but staying really present with it. And then I would just leave. I go for a walk and be okay for a while and then I'd come and go. So staying present with the experience was the only thing that helped me. And I bring this up now because With all that's happened with COVID, there's so much loss, but there's also the coping that I think we haven't all had time to recognize grief as part of what, what needs to be acknowledged and not necessarily jumping to meditating with it to try to make it go away <laughs> or thinking about it analytically and knowing how I know that everything is impermanent. So I should let go of my, you know, be a good practitioner, like, have we given ourselves time to let ourselves fall apart, <laughs> to be mad with grief for a while, to get soothed in whatever way <laughs> is needed? And maybe some of you have, have gone through this, um, but you know the changes and the drastic change in society is still ongoing. We don't know where this is going. And then with the murders that continue and uprisings, protests, buildings burning. There are a lot of opinions about this. And opinions are a very easy way to avoid feeling. Especially for people I'm looking through, and I don't, I know that looking at people does not say everything, but it seems that there might be a lot of people on this call who could identify as white, who have European ancestors. There's something very strong in white culture that does not teach us to feel.
that that leaves us numb to the the pain of those we don't live with day in and day out who are less privileged uh, a lot of oppression gets perpetuated not just with the strong overt bigots and racists and homophobes and and that sort of overt stuff but it's it's the way that everyday people get numbed to the pain of others that allows us to continue with a little bit more comfort a little bit more stability even if there's not much so there's multiple reasons that letting ourselves grieve that learning to feel the places that we've been numb to, whether it is our own pain, our neighbor's pain, the collective trauma of society. It's not fun or easy, but it's essential. It's essential work. And especially if we're spiritual practitioners, the tendency to want to jump to practicing with it, with the underlying impulse of making the want, wanting the pain to go away is so profound. I know I'd see myself doing it all the time. That's why I can speak about this. <laughs> and yet the tendency doesn't actually help us. It doesn't lead to the deepest healing and transformation and awakening that we seek. And it doesn't support us to show up in solidarity, to build a world based on compassion and justice and peace and true freedom. And sometimes just naming grief does a lot to give us space to let ourselves grieve. Um, especially, I, I know my sister, I don't have children, but my sister has a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And um, the busyness of raising children doesn't leave a lot of room <laughs> for grieving. Uh, those, those who've continued to work through this crisis and are bearing the frontline workers, the essential workers, the healthcare workers, the just got to keep going, putting food on the table-ness of things does not give space for grief. Um, and then also those who've, who've been at home and isolated and trying to get through the days and doing a lot more Netflix binging than intended and it's not the same thing as actually feeling, as letting ourselves experience the felt sense of the grief. That we probably have built up a pattern of not feeling from very early on that was the wisest thing that could be sorted out by our nervous systems when we were kids and faced things that were overwhelming. So this is not to judge ourselves, but just to recognize that pretty much everyone needs some help and some extra space to learn to grieve and to make space and time for grieving. And yet to grieve is not enough. Or to, as Ty likes to say, suffering is not enough. We need to know how to suffer, but we also need to know more than that. And I, there are many ways we could dive into this, but I specifically wanted to bring up gratitude because I find it's a particularly appropriate counterbalance or matching practice to support us to be able to grieve and to also balance um, times of difficulty, times of great sorrow and loss and instability, uncertainty, 
confusion, rage, appropriate rage these last few months. There are endless ways to to cultivate gratitude. And I wanted to just give a little definition. The Buddha didn't speak often about gratitude. I only found it mentioned in three suttas, offhandedly and almost. But in the Mahamangala Sutta, which is in our chanting book, the, the Highest Blessing Sutta, that has you know lists of this and this and this. This is the highest blessing. Uh, to cease and abstain from evil, to abstain from intoxicating drinks and to be diligent in performing righteous acts. This is the highest blessing. It has all these lists to support one's family, to hear the Dharma, to uh, have a, a livelihood that does not harm other beings. These, these are all, it says the highest blessing, but there's lists of dozens of things. So it's not, it's not singular. And point eight is reverence, humility, contentment, gratitude, and the timely hear of the, hearing of the Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha. This is the highest blessing. And I love this because it gives a sense of what kind of gratitude we're cultivating here. A gratitude that is filled with contentment and therefore is not clinging and searching and grabbing for more. A gratitude that is humble, that does not need to be big and take all the attention, but humble like the earth. It's not, it's not a, a low self-esteem kind of hiding. Humble comes from the root humus earth. And I find that's a really beautiful way to understand what kind of humility we're talking about here. Steady, powerful, but not needing, yeah, all the attention and not hiding either. Reverence. For me, reverence is the foundation of gratitude because it requires an acknowledgement of reciprocity, of interbeing or interconnectedness with everything that is. And this Pali word, so a lot of the suttas are recorded in Sanskrit, which was the holy language or Pali, which was a little bit more like the vernacular of the Buddha's era, not exactly, but close enough. And they're very related. So the Pali term for what we translate as gratitude is katanyu. And it literally means acknowledging what has been done. So it's the gratitude that comes from recognizing how much has been received. And this is where I find gratitude to be a such a profound balancing factor to grief. Because often in our grief, we get very caught and stuck in our own situation. Whereas gratitude is constantly inviting us to look outward. And depending upon how you were raised and what messages you received, you might have received toxic messages about gratitude and kind of shut it out, that you should be grateful because other people, you know, they're, I know I, I certainly heard that there are children starving in Africa. You should be grateful for this meal. Um, and the thing is, sometimes a comparison can bring a genuine gratitude, but an obligation to feel grateful 
is what I would call a toxic gratitude. It doesn't actually liberate the heart. Uh, that comparison and that duty it sort of pushes us down. It squeezes us and can, brings in a contraction. But when we can receive the invitation to recognize what has been given and cultivate gratitude from there, this kind of gratitude can become a liberating quality. And there's nothing that has taught me more about this than the practice of gattas. I imagine some of you have heard of this and maybe some not. So gatha means verse, and it's these small poems that we use in Plum Village and many other Zen lineages to bring us back to this present moment. So some of you have heard the waking up gatha. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours lie before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to live each moment with compassion. There's different translations with the eyes of love, with the eyes of compassion, something like that. And the idea is to actually wake up in the morning and say that. And gata practice is usually introduced as a way to bring mindfulness into daily life. It, it makes us pause, come back to the present moment if we've been lost in dispersion. And that is one aspect. That's the beginning aspect of it. it it's a profound, we would say a mindfulness spell, a profound reminder to come home to oneself. But as I practice this over the years, because certainly as an aspirant in my training time and as a novice, this was the focus of our training. We didn't have a lot of classes around sutras and <laughs> philosophy. We were uh, instructed to learn a good, we had to memorize all 68 that are in the novice training manual. And there's about 30 or 40 for daily use that we had to memorize, use, take notes every night, share with our mentors. So I practiced with these quite uh, intentionally. I actually wrote songs for all of them so that I could remember them because it's a lot to remember. And over time, I started realizing, what's the, what's the point of all this pausing? Who cares how well I can follow my breath and you know with where my mind is? except the moments when that pause opened up space for gratitude and reciprocity and a sense of reverence for life. And not just when someone had given me something to say thanks for, but as we're taught, you know, to recognize all oh, this air, this air I'm breathing. Wow, I can say thanks to the air. I can say thanks to the ground that I'm walking on to have to have the home of Mother Earth, the sun that feed, that makes food grow. Thank you, sun. To start recognizing this really profound, deeper level of reciprocity, of interbeing, to cultivate reverence uh, and, and a wonder at how amazing it is to be alive at all, that that this heart is working, <laughs> that these lungs can breathe and blood is circulating. Wow, it doesn't have to be a personally given gift in order to cultivate a gratitude to say thank you in return to a specific intentional person. 
if if one if any of you and i have a sense of a divine being then this kind of practice tends to be a little easier a little more natural because there can be a you know a thank you god thank you allah thank you gaia um and i think a lot of us who've maybe left those kind of traditions and find ourselves in dharma come with this scientific materialism it's like i'm not gonna say thank you i'm not gonna lower myself i don't believe in that stuff and if you come with that i can understand i've been in that place and after doing the gata practice for so many years i started to just feel into this sense of you know there's just a living presence that pervades everything and it doesn't have to have a name <laughs> I don't have to believe in some outer being to say thanks to life. Thank you, air. Thank you, earth. Thank you, heart. Thank you, ancestors whose DNA fills my cells. Even if the specific ancestors I've met, I'm not super fond about everything or there's been abuse. We can thank like the, the way back ancestors who have also helped to give the DNA that is in every single cell in my hand in this body. We're descendants of the Big Bang. We have billions of years of ancestors. That can be who we think. Whatever works. Marveling at the wonders of biology. That's what we think. <laughs> it doesn't matter who we're thinking. It's the thinking that can transform our lives. So I want to Give us all a quick little experiment. If any of you have seen the, the wording for the gatas, there's, yeah, these different, usually four-line verses for cup of tea. It's this cup of tea in my two hands is mindfulness held perfectly upright. My mind and body dwell in the very here and now. And then take a sip. The nice thing is you don't actually have to memorize anything. If you like the words, go ahead. Or if there's another phrase of poetry or scripture that you like, go ahead, memorize it. But the essential thing is to just take a pause, check full presence, and then let the heart say thank you. So what I want us to do for the next minute or two is to actually, wherever you are, offer thanks to the objects in your space. So from the chair you're sitting on, you can, you can just use your eyes if it's far away, notice it, feel a, a deep inner presence. And then, you know, I see the blender across the room from me. I love the smoothies that I'm able to make because of this blender. And just say, thank you, blender. You don't even need to say the words. Clothing whatever it is, or if you want to try offering a bow of thanks, for me, it really opens my heart. So you can see whatever you want to do, you can turn your screen off if you don't want anyone to see you, but just experiment for the next minute and a half. Saying thank you in whatever way works for you to the objects in your space and see if a heart quality come into it it might take a few seconds or longer but don't 
Don't make it too special. Just a little, ah, oh, thanks. I'll invite a bell at the end of these minute and a half. So some of us might have a little warm glow in the heart and tune into that on a felt sense. And if you don't have a felt sense of gratitude, see if it's possible to just open a curiosity of what would it be like for there to just be a little space for the warmth of gratitude to come when it's ready. They don't force it. But we invite, we, we open to the possibility. And now see if it's possible to sort of let this infuse the body. And think of something that has brought you grief over the last months, weeks, days, heartache over murders and lynchings, economic instability, deaths from COVID, climate change. And see if it's possible to like let this sense of gratitude hold a sense of grief. See if they can mingle, even just for a few breaths. And is this different than perhaps other ways of meeting loss and uncertainty? And then if you want, you can even just let it flow out. 
Exhale or shake the body a little bit. Look around the room. Make sure you're oriented in this time and space. Thank you for being willing to do this. I'm gonna wrap up. Um, yeah, this is just a small taste of what if, what if we allow ourselves to open fully to both grief and gratitude? Not fearing one or the other. Cultivating the gratitude without shutting out the grief. How does that allow the grief to come in and flow through as opposed to get stuck? Um, and then still cultivating the gratitude in the midst of Whew, really good reasons to maybe focus on get stuck in other things. So I'll bow it here and look forward to hearing what this brings up in folks, how this lands, if it makes sense or not. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I guess, shall I offer three sounds of the bell just to just to close this segment and to let it all sink in. <laughs> 